Good morning. Uh, we're going to jump back into our uh, series on God's design. Uh, and if you remember a few weeks ago, uh, we kicked off the idea, we discussed gender. Do you remember that? Uh, we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, and we see that at, right at the outset of creation, we see that God created us as individuals engendered, right? As two distinct, as male and female. Uh, we discussed that idea of being engendered and how it's built into the system. It doesn't imply one gender over or above the other. Uh, how in God's system, how in God's plan and God's design, uh, it never was meant to be simply patriarchy, nor was it meant to be feminism. It wasn't meant to be either extreme, but rather uh, this correspondence that, that leads to this expressing the image of God fully. Remember, we talked about that. Uh, and then a few weeks ago, men, you had your chance. Remember, we, we looked at masculinity. Uh, we teased out some, I think, some pretty good points and some challenges from the scriptures. Uh, and now this morning, uh, as promised, uh, ladies, it's your turn. Uh, and let me tell you how nerve-wracking it is to preach a sermon on what it means to be a woman. Eric, have you ever done that? You <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Uh, so usually uh, when, I, when I preach and I study, I usually, there's usually a bit of nervousness, just to let you, let you into a little bit of a pastor's mind. Uh, every sermon, there's always a bit of nervousness. you kind of working on it, and then Eric can probably test. You get it half done, you're like, this is junk. And then you just a little existential crisis, and it comes together on a Saturday night, and you're good to go. Uh, this one I'm nervous about. I think I've had Kirsten read it like twice. Uh, is this okay? So here we go. Uh, ladies, what does it mean to be female? Everything. Interesting question. Everything! <laughs> Everything. What does it mean to be female? What is femininity? We we're going to prodded men with this a few weeks ago. What does it mean for you to be female? What does it mean for you to be feminine? And I think that for some, there's something, there's this spectrum somewhere between a Donna Reed and June Cleaver. You remember the Donna Reed show? Old show, Donna Reed show. And it, it implies this type of woman uh, that is ever doting. Uh, she's in the kitchen. Uh, dinner's ready when her husband gets home. She's always put together. Uh, very dainty. I guess the, the stereotypical barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen type of woman, right? There's an end of that spectrum. A little bit of a Donna Reed show, a little bit of Leave it to Beaver in there. And, and this, of course, I, I think is wrong, and I think this is rooted in a bit more of a, a patriarchal understanding of femininity. And, and with this position comes this tendency to view women as subservient, right? I think there's a tendency that women are subservient, that they are lesser, that they're, they're the weaker sex and they're really not as valuable as men. And I think on the other end of the spectrum, so if you have that on one side, on the other side, you've got something more in line with that iconic image of Rosie the Riveter, right? You know, the old, the old World War II poster and that ever goal-oriented, goal-driven, career-minded, the, the stereotypical feministic view of women. And with this view usually comes with this idea of treating women not just as equal, but as superior to men, as above men, as better than men, uh, a view that tends to view men as pigs and not necessary and completely oafish. Do you know that's a real word, oafish? It didn't put a red squiggly line under word when I typed that out, oafish. 
But there you have two ends of the spectrum of what, it me- like, what culture will offer us as a definition of femininity. And so I want to ask, is there a middle road? Is there a different definition of femininity? Is there, is there a position of femininity that holds high the immense value of women and their contribution while also not elevating women above that of men, above the position of men and not elevating men above women? Is there a middle position? And I think so. Uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. We've been here a lot, uh, but I just want to read this again. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 23. And with this question, ladies, this is, sorry guys, you can kind of camp out a little bit. Uh, ladies, this is going to be for you this morning. And when, as we read this text, ask yourself, what, is, what do we see about ourselves? What do we see about femininity in Genesis chapter 2? So starting in verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should, not, that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Very familiar passage. We've already looked at it in dealing with masculinity. But what does it show us about femininity? What does it show us about your femaleness, ladies? I see three things here. The first being this, that women by nature. You ready for this point number one? That women, we see that woman is a gift. Women as a gift. We see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. The second thing I I see here is woman as helper. We see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and you're really going to like that section because it's not what you typically think of when you hear helper. We're going to play around with that phrase a little bit. And then number three, woman as keeper. And we're going to find that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, and we're going to argue backwards from the fall of the curse and see some of this stuff for women. So the first point, a woman as a gift. Here we go. Women as a gift. By nature, by default, you are gifts. All the ladies say, aw. Husbands, your wives are gifts. Ladies, you are gifts. And here's what I mean by that. If we look at the, the cadence of Genesis chapter 1, remember it's got a bit of a rhythm, a little bit of a flow as God creates 
it kind of some things get repeated in poetic fashion. We'll see, God said, and then it was good. God said, and it was good. God said, and it was good. And it's repeated six times, culminating with this bit of a crescendo in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, where we read that, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There we see it. Upon the creation of both man and woman, God caused a creation very good. Here's a question, though. When is the only time that God looks at out over his creation and calls it not good? What's that? Yeah. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. When is the only time that God looks out over his creation and calls it not good? Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Interesting thought there. All of Genesis 1, and God said, and it was good. God said it was good. And at the one time that he said it's not good, it was when man was womanless. When there was no lady. So imagine the scene. Here's Adam, a freshly minted. Right here he is, just freshly minted, brand new. He's standing in the garden before a parade of animals. All of them brought before him to receive a name. We read that in Genesis 2. And Adam's busy about his role of working and keeping, but Adam was alone. And and I bet he began to feel alone, although he probably didn't know what the feeling was, but he began to sense this bit of aloneness. And as he named the animals, he began to see the corresponding pairs of them, I assume, coming by. And Adam was alone. And then God's answer is beautiful for Adam's aloneness. Here's God's answer. Uh, you, uh, You probably, I don't think anybody was alive then, but August 25th, 1939. Ready? August 25th, 1939. Barb was probably there. You were like 18, right, Barb? (laughs) Not, Not Barb Kohler. You were 16. Um, So August 25th, 1939, one of the greatest films of all time was released. It was state-of-the-art with its use of color. It was nominated for six Academy Awards, and it won the award for Best Original Song. Good job. The song was Over the Rainbow, and it was sung by Judy Garland, the Wizard of Oz. And do you remember the opening scene of The Wizard of Oz? Do you remember the opening scene? It was shot in black and white. Remember this? The movie was black and white. The tornado comes in, picks the house up. It's all kind of crazy. The weird witch drives by in a bicycle. You're not sure if Dorothy's just tripping or it's actually happening. But here she, the house gets picked up. And then the house is set down. You remember this? You remember this scene? The house is set down and Dorothy and Toto, they come to. And she opens the door to the house. And what happens? Go ahead, Vicki. What was it? It's in color, right? The the whole opening act is completely black and white, and she opens the door to Oz, and it's fully colored. You'd be like, where are you going with this point? Hear me on this. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, reads exactly like the black and white scene from The Wizard of Oz. You've got creation is existing, Adam's there, but there's seemingly no vibrance. There's seemingly nothing, it's just some stuff happening. And then verses 22 and 23 reads exactly like the moment Dorothy opens the door to Oz. 
Let's read it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam bursts forth into poetic song. Do you see that in the text? He sings. He's so excited. For the first time, there's vibrancy in the garden. Eve colored the creation as a good gift from the hand of God to Adam and subsequently the entire created order. Listen to me, ladies, seriously. You by nature, you by nature, by definition, are a gift. You are a gift. You are by nature the color of creation. And notice this, and this is where I want to camp on this for a minute. Notice that Eve was brought to the man before she prettied herself up. Without cooking him dinner, she was brought to him, catch this, she was brought to him as she was, and she was enough. She was brought to the man as she was, and she was enough. And here's what I see here, ladies, with you being a gift, that your value and worth, are you ready? Your value and worth are not dependent upon the size of your breasts, the size of your waist, the color of your hair, the cleanliness of your home, the grades of your children, your success in the workplace. Your worth and value are rooted in you simply being created by God as gifts. That's right here in the text. Don't buy the lie that your worth is for sale in the makeup aisle or in Victoria's Secret or anywhere else. Your value is rooted in the fact that you have been created and instilled with purpose by the mighty hand of God Almighty. Amen? It's right here in the Genesis text. And ladies, this, for real, all of culture is, is whispering in your ears, is yelling loudly and offering hints at what femininity is. And typically, when they suggest to you what femininity is, they offer a product by which you can attain your femininity, right? So they'll say, ladies, you're feminine, but buy my little jar of serum. Ladies, you're, 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 you can be feminine, and it's so foolish because you are feminine because you're created as a woman. A couple little facts. Uh, I'm, I'm a statistics nerd. I love numbers. Uh, Goldman Sachs, they, they estimate this, that the global female beauty industry, you ready for this? The global female beauty industry is valued at $95 billion. That's billion with a B. In other words, billions of dollars are spent per year addressing the most intimate insecurities of women. $24 billion in skincare, $18 billion on makeup, $38 billion on hair care, $15 billion on perfumes. Ladies, for the sake of yourselves, your, your girlfriends and daughters, fight this. Fight this. To, to be clear, it's okay to pretty yourself up. I'm not saying that. It's okay. Pretty yourself up and dress nice, but don't do it at the expense of your identity. You are more than when you pretty yourself up. You're more than a bottle of makeup. You are not your makeup and your clothing. You are beautiful and dignified, for God made you that way. Amen? Ladies, by default, by nature, you are gifts. You don't need beauty products. You are gifts. Don't find your identity there. Now, the second one. 
The second point, so we see women as a gift. And now this, women as a helper. We see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It said, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now here's the sticking point. I like your face, Leah. You're like, where are you going with this, bro? Oh, that's a good picture of AJ. The sticking point is this, that to be sure, this concept of helper has been used maliciously. I think it's been used to oppress and demean women, to, to present them as something lesser, to make you subservient and subpar when compared to your male counterparts. And that's not the case. While the Bible does clearly teach the roles associated with each gender, if we had time, we could talk about what it means to be complementarian. The Bible certainly does not demean either gender. It doesn't demean one or the other. So let's look at this word helper. This is, this is a fascinating word. The word helper appears 21 times in the Old Testament. You ready? 21 times in the Old Testament. The, the first use is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and the second is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. The first time the word helper is used in the Bible, these two times, it's spoken of in regards to a woman. Let's look at the next occurrence. Exodus chapter 18, verse 4. I'll, I'll, I can read it to you if you just want to write these down. This is, this is a good study for you ladies. Exodus chapter 18, verse 4. In the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help, saying God is my help, God is my helper. The, the next occurrence and use of the word helper, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 7, Moses says, And this he said of Judah, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him into his people. With your hands contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. The next occurrence of the word helper, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 26, There is none like God, O Jeshuan, who rides through the heavens to your help. Are you catching a pattern here with the use of the word helper? Ladies, do you notice anything when he says the word helper after the two uses of being used of a woman? It's always of God. Uh, Psalm, turn with me to Psalm chapter 115. Psalm chapter 115. And we see this played out beautifully. Uh, Psalm chapter 115, verses 9 through 11. We read this, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The word help, as we see, it goes on, is used 21 times in the Old Testament, and every time except three. The two uses in Genesis 2 and one use in Daniel 11, it is used in reference to God's support, protection, reinforcement, and giving of strength to his people. Now, what does it have to do with Eve being called a helper? What does it have to do with you ladies being by default, not only by nature, not only gifts, but helpers? Kathy Keller writes this. The Hebrew word translated as helper is ezer, and it's almost always used in the Bible to describe God himself. Other times it is used to describe military help, such as reinforcements, without which a battle would be lost. 
I like this, these last two sentences. To help someone then is to make up what is lacking in him with your strength. Woman was made to be a strong helper. I love that. Where oftentimes in Christian culture, in circles, the word helper tends to be something of lesser value, that women, your only point in life is to make your husband look good. Or women, your only point in life is to make the men in your life look better. And the biblical narrative knows none of that. The biblical story says you are strong helpers. And if you look back at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, not only does it say this, it is not good that man should be alone. God says, I'll make him a helper fit for him. And when you join the word help to the phrase fit for him, the author Christy Coyle writes this, that women were being created, were created to be a corresponding strength, an essential counterpart, or an indispensable companion. That's good. Ladies, that's good. Viewing yourself as corresponding strength, essential counterpart, or indispensable companion. And here's what I think this means. Again, it's awkward as a guy saying, here's what I think this means for you, ladies. But here's what I think, some couple points of application this morning for you in regards to this idea of being a helper. I think it would suggest this, that you don't buy the lie of the feminine spectrum. On the one hand, don't buy into the staunch feminism mindset that you are by nature better than men. To be sure, men are not better than you. But you're not better than me. You're not better than a man. The the perception of men as oafish idiots, useless, is not only demeaning to the men in your life, but you, by adopting such positions, I'm finding this, tend to hamstring the little men in your life. Don't buy the lie of feminism. And could it be that the, the reason that there's a lack of men in our culture today is partly rooted in this feministic tendency towards portraying masculinity as bad? That's an interesting thought. On the one end of the spectrum, we, we want to demean masculinity. Don't do that. Don't do that. And if you're married here today, here's a little advice. Stop husband bashing. I think this fits into here. If you're married, stop bashing your husband. Stop it. Stop your little clubs that demean the character of your husband. Stop it. For the health of your church, for the health of your relationship, stop it. That's a little tangent. Now back on point. You are a corresponding creature designed to complement the shortcomings of man. Isn't that a great thing? You're a corresponding creature. Embrace your correspondence and in so doing you show forth the image of God as the helper of humanity. And here's what I think is a beautiful thing for you, ladies, that that is the gospel story. The gospel story is one of the ultimate form of help coming through the person of Jesus, and women are the expression of the truth that God is our helper. Isn't that beautiful? Now, on the other end of the spectrum, don't buy into the staunch, subservient mindset that you are by nature lesser than man. Don't buy that lie either. You are of equal yet different value. Go, this is what this means. Are you ready? As a dad, as a dad of soon to be two little girls, we're having a little girl, by the way. No one knew that. Is that okay? Okay, they knew that. 
They knew that. As a dad of soon-to-be two little girls and the, dad and the husband of a wife, here's some advice when it comes to this idea of being a strong helper. Go and get educated. Ladies, go and work. Go and be a mighty force for the kingdom of God. You don't have to just be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. Go! Look to the Ruths, the Naomi's, Esther's, Deborah's, and Mary's of Scripture. Follow their lead. It's beautiful. And here's an interesting thought. Here's another question for you, a little Bible trivia question. Who was the first person to exegete and interpret the Word of God? Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. On this point, on a woman working, being a mighty force for the kingdom of God. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And we read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you trust, touch it, lest you die. Here's an interesting thought. Eve was the first person. Now, she did it wrongly. We'll say that. She misinterpreted. But here's the thought. I challenge you with this, ladies, is where is your theological rigor? I think it's a beautiful thing that the first person to try to interpret and exegete the Word of God in all of Scripture is a lady, is Eve. Why is the majority of women's ministry centered around fluffy comforts? Don't settle for that. When was the last time that you read and studied the scriptures not to attain comfort, but to catch a vision of the Lord Almighty? Ladies, when was the last time the Lord Jesus was the focus of your study over yourself being the focus? Drink deep, ladies. You're free to do it. You want to strengthen PCBC? As we move forward into this next step of the life of PCBC, be theological giants, ladies. You're allowed to be, and in fact, you don't need permission to be. God calls you to be it. You're free. Be a strong helper. And now the final point. Woman as a keeper. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Woman as a keeper. I want to argue from the curse here for a moment. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, we read this. This is after they've eaten of the fruit. This is after, this is as the judgment of sin is coming down. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. This is God handing out judgment. He says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Interesting little passage here. Notice a verse or two up. What the curse affected for Adam. Genesis chapter 3, or verse after. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. God says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. 
And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What was affected for Adam? Remember his initial call was to go and work and keep, right? God put him in the garden to work and keep the garden. And in Genesis 3, verse 17 through 19, Adam's work was affected. His working would get difficult. His working would get painful. Now for Eve, in verse 16, the childbearing and marital relationship, there would would now be tension. There would now be struggle. There would now be a problem in the keeping. Hear me out on this. Wherein the word for work signifies manufacturing, laboring, and cultivation, the word keep signifies caring and nurturing for that which is being cultivated. And I think this, I think from the text that Adam was doing just fine working in the garden, I think he really needed help in the keeping. I think Adam was fine doing it. We see him doing it. He's naming the animals. He's working the garden. Adam really needed help in the keeping. And Eve was created, I think, I can argue it from the text, foundationally as a keeper, foundationally as a nurturer, a supporter, a comforter, or an enabler. So Eve was created to be. And ladies, I think this, that the world is going to pull you in one of two directions. I think there's a spectrum here. The world's going to pull you in one of two directions. On the one hand, there's going to be offered to you this dangerous offer that says forsake your identity as a gift forsake your identity as a helper it's an offer of self at the expense of others it's an offer of self as the primary importance in your life and we see this displayed in the world of tabloids and facebook ads tv commercials every shopping center you go to this emphasis and this drive towards overindulgence of beautifying yourself of treating oneself, of over-exercising yourself. It's a position that holds, I'm the most important. It views being created as a gift to mean superiority and as a helper to mean, I, I ain't need no man. I am the queen. Life is about me and my joy and happiness. On the other hand of this spectrum, there's offered to women the polar opposite, the offer of forgetting your identity as a gift and a helper. It's a position more often than not perpetuated by Christendom. It's a position that views being created as a gift to mean to be used and walked on. It's a position that pushes forth the idea that to be a helper is to be subservient to men. Which, by the way, let me make this statement that, ladies, you are not submitted to any other man besides your husband, by the way. As often comes out in Christian culture, ladies are told to submit to all men. That's not true. That's not here. It's a position that that puts forth this idea that to be the helper is subservient to men, to be barefoot and in the kitchen and pregnant. It's a position wherein women completely and utterly lose their identity and begin to attach it onto their children and their husbands' careers. The biblical middle is not one of forsaking or forgetting, but one of 
forging your identity as gifts and helpers, as embracing it. So ladies, here at PCBC, I feel like I did a bad job at trying to define femininity to you. But if I leave you with one thing, you are this. You hear me loud and clear that you are gifts, that you are helpers, that you are keepers, all of which show, are you ready? All of which show and proclaim your immense value and asset to the kingdom of God and to God himself. You are not second-rate citizens in the kingdom of God. You know, I thought was foolish in trying to study for this sermon how many men have written books on biblical femininity. Any other lady think that's foolish and dumb? Be robust, ladies. You're not lesser. You're not demeaned. You are not objects. You are partial image bearers of God himself. And as such, we celebrate your femininity as the glorious counterpart of masculinity. Amen? Amen. Femininity. You are gifts. You are helpers. You are keepers. And now next week, I want to take it one step further. We've talked about gender. We've talked about masculinity and femininity. And I want to step it up and talk about the ultimate expression of correspondence. Uh, between the genders. I want to talk about marriage next week, so uh, get ready for that. We're going to talk about marriage. Uh, Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that it is just loaded with with reality. It is loaded with truth. It is loaded with bedrock ideas of who we are, statements of who we are, that it doesn't shift with cultural views of the world. We thank you for your word. We love you. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.